listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, thanks, Eric. That was crazy. Yeah. Um, hey, th- and thanks for letting me be here um, at this campus. Although it's really, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to come preach down here at the downtown campus. I ask all the time, and he's like, "No, no, no, we're busy. We can't. Uh, you can't come down." So, anyways, um, I'm really glad to be here. This is like re- this is like my favorite place to be. If there was some way I could work it out that I could be the campus pastor down here, I would. I've been trying to do that for two years, and it hadn't worked out yet. Um, I don't think anybody wants me. But anyways, that's uh, here's the deal. This is the difference. If you, if you don't know me, let me tell you the difference between Eric and I. And I can't remember who, who summed it up this way. Actually, there's a couple ways it's been summed up. Um, but somebody was like, hey, sometimes I get on and listen to you preach uh, on, the, on the podcast. But when I do, I have to put it on 1.5 um, because... Uh, you talk so slow, and I'm used to Eric, and if not, I fall asleep. And so I put it on 1.5 to just be able to listen to it. So if, if for some reason you doze off this morning and then you wake back up, it's a good chance I'm still in the same paragraph, okay? So, you know, unlike Eric, you know, you doze off and you miss like, you know, you missed a sermon and he's in the next sermon. Uh, so I'm not that efficient, but... We're going to plod along and get through this together. So I'm going to be in Psalm 8, and here's what I get to do. So we've been this summer looking at this thing called the pursuit of wisdom. And this actually, this morning, is going to be the last, we're kind of closing out this pursuit of wisdom series. And the next week, we're going to start kind of a new uh, series that's an old series that we do every August as we kind of remind ourselves what Bethel is and why we're doing what we're doing. And there will be some wisdom things in there. But in earnest, this is the last of the pursuit of wisdom. And we're going to be looking this morning at the wisdom of worship from Psalm 8. And I begin this morning by asking the question, as we, as we think about Psalm 8, of who are you and why are you here? Who are you and why are you here? And it's not a trick question. I mean, it's not like, you know... Well, of course, I know who I am and, and, and why I'm here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in, insert your name, and, and I'm at Bethel to to be at church. And but I mean, at the most fundamental level, who are you, and why are you here? And these are these are questions that, like, when it gets quiet, and and. And all the noise stops and all the busyness squish. These are the things that press in on us. And really, they've pressed in on mankind for a long, 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 long time. And every culture has sort of sought to answer them. And, and we live in a day that, um, listen, every... Every generation, every culture, listen, for, since Genesis chapter 3, has been screwed up in its own way. And, and we in the 21st century have our own, um, man, we have our own certain baggage. Mark Sayers, uh, 
an author. He, he wrote this book called Vertical Self. Um, it's a great book. He's written several books, but Vertical Self, How Biblical Faith Can Help Us Discover Who We Are in an Age of Self-Obsession. It's a great, it's a great diagnosis. This, here's a couple of things that he says. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs because I think they're very penetrating. He says, Welcome to the 21st century where you can now purchase and change personalities the way we change clothes, depending on the mood or circumstance. Welcome to the world in which we're told that we can be anyone we want to be, where identity is no longer based in a sense of self, but rather in the imagery we choose at any particular moment. He goes on, he says this, try this experiment. So, So think about this. In three or four sentences, he says, describe what makes someone... Cool, sexy, glamorous. In in three or four sentences, think think about that. He says, how'd you do? It's a lot harder than you think, yet many people around the globe use these words to create identities for themselves. Think about the millions, if not trillions of dollars that are spent every year on products, clothes, experiences, even property, so that people can convince themselves and others that these adjectives describe them, and that they are therefore valuable members of society. Cool, sexy, glamorous, these are the new social virtues. We've gotten to this point because we've lost a sense of self, and now all we can do is act. We've lost our identities, and we don't know how to get them back. In addition to that, he says, our peers, our culture, it is a mirror, acts as a mirror for us. We look to them to gain a sense of identity, yet they can only relay back to us the messages we communicate. So, so you can't describe yourself as cool. Others must label you as cool. In that way, our identities are dependent on what others think of us. However, this means we do not think of ourselves as being created in the image of God. We turn everyone around us into mirrors with one purpose to tell us who we are they become our audience so we hope that we will project the right image into culture so we will receive the right messages back we are all constantly running a personal public relations campaign in order to receive messages of meaning and it doesn't matter what you really think or feel all that matters is what people see. This is, this, is, this is very interesting and damning diagnosis, isn't it? Who are you? And why are you here? Well, here's the great thing about Psalm 8. Psalm 8 has its own diagnosis of who we are and why we're here. David is the, is the writer of this psalm. And in many ways, I'm going to read it here in just one second, and, and we're, going to, we're going to see it together. Psalm 8 has been described as, the, as sort of a lyrical echo or, a, or, the, or, the, or the pop song, if you will, of Genesis chapter 1. If Genesis chapter 1 was, was put to, to music... And, and sung in a jingle. It, it's, it's Genesis, uh, it, that's Psalm 8. That's what David has done. And this is his diagnosis of who we are 
and why we're here. And listen to where he begins. So, so Psalm 8, I'll begin in verse 1. This is what David writes. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the, than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He begins and ends, verse 1 and verse 9, he begins and ends this with the, with the praise to God. He, the Lord, the, the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, He alone is eternal. The, the ultimate reality of all things, this is where He begins. And David, the, the king, speaking for the whole community, Lord, our Lord, the second Lord, there is Adonai. Master, he's not just a playwright, the direct, he's the sovereign. How majestic, your, your power, your, your excellence regarding his rule in your name. And when he speaks about name, he's speaking about reputation and fame, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he speaks about his glory. This is the untarnished splendor of God. And this is where David begins. And in verse 2, I want you to see, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And you've set your glory above the heavens. And in verse 2, what we see is that God's glory cannot be silenced. Then no matter how the wicked, he would say, would assert themselves. They can't undo God's glory on the earth or in heaven, it is all around. You've established your strength, he said. He's ordained this praise. The praise that proceeds from the mouth of babies, the infants, is more powerful than any denial of the foes. Even what appears to be the most weak and the most vulnerable has access to divine power. That's the way that God's ordered creation. Listen, I, I don't know how you come in here this morning. You might come in here this morning and think, listen, I have weak and vulnerability in spades. I mean, my, my mind is so um, jumbled up or my, my soul is, is so burdened or, or my life is so chaotic. I, I don't know how you are this morning. I think I, weak and vulnerable... I have that in spades. I am as far away from together as possible. And David declares in verse 2, listen, you, you, because of the, how God has ordered creation, just your whisper has access to divine power. 
That's how close he is. God's chosen to use the weak things to confound them. Confound them. He doesn't need powerful people or eloquent speakers or beautiful prayers. He doesn't need that. A simple cry for help is heard by God and has the power to overcome the world. Isn't that amazing? From the very first moments of life, we see that we are here to praise God. In fact, Matthew 21, it's also Luke 19. Jesus is coming in. It's this triumphal entry. He's coming into Jerusalem, and everybody, Hosanna, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, and all the people are... Are 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 um, waving the palm branches, you know, and they're and they're praising Jesus as he comes riding in, and, and the religious leaders, they are so put off by this, and they tell Jesus, "You better tell your followers to keep quiet." And Jesus said, "Listen, it won't do any good. Even if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out." Creations. Purpose is to praise God, is what David says. And then in verse 3, I want you to notice something. He's talking about the vastness. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, I mean, he means for us, David, he means to take us into the heavenlies. He means for us to go into the night and look into the sky and be overwhelmed by what we see. He means for us to be. I can hardly take it in when I consider it. I looked on the Google this week, all right, for the vastness of the universe. You might have known this stuff. I, I didn't. I'm from the South Campus, but... but but the earth, you know that the earth rotates at 1,000 miles an hour? I don't even know how fast that is, all right? I mean, I've driven 100 miles an hour, okay? I don't know how fast 1,000 miles an hour is. Maybe I might have driven against the rotation, so maybe it's like only going 900 miles an hour. I don't know. But 1,000 miles an hour, the earth is, if you stepped off the earth, you couldn't step back on the earth, okay? It's rotating, to, it's rotating at 1,000. Thousand miles an hour. That's how fast you're moving right now. A thousand. It's how fast Eric talks, okay? A thousand miles an hour is how fast the earth is rotating. And not only that, get this. The sun, I mean, the, the, the earth is, rotates a thousand miles an hour. It's orbiting the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. That's how fast we're moving right now. One light year, to put this into perspective, one light year is the distance traveled by light in a year, of course. That's what the Google said. 186,000 miles per second. So not, not an hour, a second. It's roughly 700 million miles per hour. So this is what that means. The average star you see unassisted with the naked eye is 100 to 1,000 light years away. Light traveling... At the rate of 186 miles per second, it takes a thousand years to reach the Earth. That means the stars that you see at night tonight, that light came 
It's reaching here. It emanated from, it began in King Richard's reign in England a thousand years ago. And you're just now going to see it tonight. 700 years before America was even a nation. That's how vast the universe is. That's what he's saying. If you take everything we know about all the solar systems in the known universe, and, they were, and you made them a, a grain of sand, you could fill eight Olympic swimming pools with it. That's how vast the universe is. That's what David means for us to consider. One writer said, he said, listen, the ancients, um, I admire our ancestors, whoever they are. I think the first self-conscious person must have shaken in his boots. Isn't that right? Another one said, I think, I think what a life of science really teaches you is the vastness of our ignorance. One commentator said, in contrast to God, the heavens are tiny, pushed around and prodded into shape by divine digits. But in contrast to the heavens, which seems so vast to our perception, it's mankind that's tiny. Which is why verse 4 is so staggering. Look at what he says. What is man that you're mindful of him? And I consider the vastness of your glory. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Why did God invest man with glory? Well, why does God uniquely care for mankind? And David does this. It's this poetic device so that we would feel this sense of awe. That we would be dumbstruck. Wait a minute. There's got to be something wrong here. Something must be in error as I consider this. But he goes on. In verse 5, he says, listen, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, which means we're not divine, but he has invested us with glory and honor. And the significance of that isn't just limited to the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Not just Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and then Genesis 3, like the whole thing becomes a trailer park. That's not it, okay? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and even today, that's who you are. Created in the image of God, still crowned with glory. Man's still glorious. But the psalmist is creating a tension for us because he's not accounting for the fall. He, he's, he's, only, he's only speaking in terms of, of God's love and, and God's care and God's compassion. The category, the, the, the glory that we have, it is not, it's not because of our great abilities. It's not because of our great capacities. We've been elevated by God because he crowned us. C.S. Lewis uh, was talking about, on, on June the 2nd of 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was, was crowned queen, okay? 
And C.S. Lewis did not attend uh, the coronation. He, he didn't because he didn't like crowds and the weather was bad. And in the end of the day, he said he, he didn't really want to go. But it was um, televised live. It was the first coronation that was televised live. And so about a month later, Lewis um, is writing uh, to a friend about this. And it, it's published in his letters. And he's reflecting on what it is that he saw uh, the moment that Queen Elizabeth was crowned. This is what he said. He says, you know, over here, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling, one hardly knows how to describe it, of awe, pity, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes sort of a symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if he said, in my inexorable love, I, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do, do you see what I mean? One's missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that coronation is somehow, if splendid, a, a tragic splendor. I think Lewis has it just right. Even though God made us lower than, than divine, he, he crowned mankind with glory and honor. These words, glory and honor, elsewhere in the Bible, only used of divine majesty, only used of God himself. And David uses this on purpose to speak of the dominion and the, the honor and the place that God has set on man. Essentially what he's saying is we've been created in the image of God. The creation of humans, the creation of man and woman, and the crowning them with glory and honor had a purpose. To give us dominion over the works. In short, God's creation of every man, every woman, was to commission us to come alongside him in this enterprise of his glory. This great position is granted by God before the fall. It was not taken away. We fell short of the glory, but it wasn't taken away. We, we, we were appointed to it. The tension that we're left with is that while it's true, we look around and we realize we made a mess of things. I mean, we look around, we, we feel it, we feel this desire, we feel this pull. We know that in our desire, listen, I, I'm created for something. I, I know, I know I'm created for something. I, I know there's something more. And yet I look around, and the world's a mess, and my family's a mess. And I'm a mess, and... Creation's not in submission and chaos, but it's in chaos. And you know what? My life's not in submission, but it's in chaos. And we know that whatever God's intention was, we failed. You see a picture of that in the Gospels. Jesus is about to 
enter Jerusalem, and uh, he's with his disciples, and they've just caught a glimpse of who he is. I mean, they've just seen him in all of his glory in the, in the transfiguration, and they've seen him as the Son of God, and they're with him. They know he's the king, and he's going in Jerusalem, and he's trying to tell them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to raise, and, and they won't have any of it, they're not listening to him. And two of them, James and John, they, they kind of take Jesus aside and they say, hey Jesus, here's, we, we wanted to ask you a question. Um, Jesus said, okay, well, out with it. And they said, well, listen, um, we were wondering, we wanted to sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. Could we do that? Yeah, 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 the dying, the, the, all that stuff, whatever. I mean, that's cool if you want to do that. But, but what we're really interested in is the, is the glory. Could we sit at your right and your left hand? We just want everybody to say yes. And then after you say yes, would you mind telling the other ten disciples that you said yes? So they just wanted to use Jesus. They didn't get it, did they? Jesus said to them, listen, I came to serve, not to be served. When we truly see Jesus, praise, worship, that begins to overflow in our life. Peter, later on, after Jesus is resurrected, after Peter comes face to face with all of his failure in his life. In John chapter 21, he, he kind of gives up. When Peter sees the reflection of who he really is, he gives up, he goes back to fishing. Jesus comes back to where he called him originally, finds him fishing. One of the other disciples says, look, I think it's Jesus. They get close enough to the shore and Peter knows him. You know what he does? Strips off his clothes, jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore, and falls on his face in worship. And there it is that Jesus restores him. The highest of all Dignities will be bestowed upon us. Well done, good and faithful servant. It wasn't bestowed upon Adam and Eve. It was bestowed upon Jesus. It's what was intended for us in Genesis 1. We lost it in Genesis 3. Jesus restores it. That's why the psalmist is praising God. Searching for the answer who he is, why he's here. You know where he looks? He looks to God. The more majestic God is to you, his power, his excellence, his rule, the more majestic he is, the more of his royal presence is in your life, the more you understand your own glory and honor and how mindful he is of you. You don't look, listen, you don't look at your accomplishments. You don't look at your, at your accumulations or your natural abilities or your physical beauty or your moral excellence. That's not where you find your identity. You look to him. Identity means 
to be like. We speak of identical twins. They're like each other. You don't look to other things to see what you're like, to find your identity. It's in coming to God, it's saturating your mind in your heart with His majesty, like David's doing, that you find out what you're like. You look to Him to find yourself. You know why? Because you're created in His image. So the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, he, he's trying to work all this out as well. The, the writer of Hebrews is wrestling with the dignity of man, and yet the writer of Hebrews is also keenly aware of the fallenness of man. And so as the writer of Hebrews is wrestling with the dignity of man, the fallenness of man, and, and where, how does Jesus restore these things, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 draws back on Psalm 8, draws back to these words. And so in he, Hebrews chapter 2, he says the very same thing. He draws back what David's words are. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, that you made him a little lower than the angels, that you crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet, and it dawns on him. Wait a minute. I know what this is about. It's about Jesus. And then it says this. Get this. It's, ama it's amazing what the writer of Hebrews... It's amazing what dawns on the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he considers this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. Yet at the present, we do not see everything under our feet. You have to think about that. So wait a minute. We do not see everything under our feet. Well, I don't see anything under my feet. And we look at ourselves and say, well, I'm a mess. The world's a mess. How could we be these great and wonderful and glorious creatures bestowed with the honor of God? We don't see everything under our feet. This is what he says, though, in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, not crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so but by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So when you see yourself, you know what you see? You, you see exactly who you are. And Jesus came, he stepped out of eternity into humanity to take on our flesh in the incarnation. And he took on everything we were. Everything broken and sinful and shameful about us. Everything that we deserved, he endured. And in turn, everything that Jesus is, he gives to us and restores us. You know what Paul says? Paul, Paul has this language that he continues to use. When you trust Jesus, you know what he says? You're in Christ, Christ is in you. You're in Christ, Christ is in you. 
You're in Christ. And Christ is in you. You're in union with him. Where he is, you are. Where you are, he is. Everything he is, you are. You're in him. If you want to know who you are, that's where you look. The blueprint of who we are meant to be is in the person of Christ. To become ourselves, we become like Christ. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Culture leads us to a hall of mirrors. The Bible introduces us to the image of Christ. The only image that matters. The divine plan we were created for, that the glory, the honor that we long for, that we were designed for, that we're searching for, is realized because of Jesus who became man. In Christ, we become whole, united to him. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. Well, I'll tell you, there's one more thing in in Hebrews that I can't believe the writer of Hebrews says this. Because it's actually pretty staggering. Not only can we not see everything under our feet, but we can look at Jesus and see everything under his feet. But he goes on to say this in verse 11 and 12 in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my, uh, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Do you know what he's saying? It might be hard for us to understand. So, so if, you're, if, if your history, if your background is strictly like an American culture, this doesn't really land on you very well. If your history is, is your, your background is outside of American culture, you, you might catch the weight of this. See, in America, we, we, most Americans don't even know their great-grandparents' names. We, we don't value what family means in the 20th, 21st century America. Like no other culture in the world, we have despised that. But the history of the world knows that. Like if we wanted to say something about ourselves, we wanted to present ourselves well, what we would do is we would put a resume together, we'd put all our accomplishments on there, we would think about every award we won since the third grade, everything we participated in and got a medal, we'd put that on our resume. But the history of the world would never think to do that. The history of the world wouldn't give a resume. The history of the world would get a genealogy because everybody knows who you are is really a product of your family. Everybody knows that you can tell so much about who you are from where it is that you came from. 
That's why the Roman rulers, when they would um, put out their pedigree, they, they, they wanted to look great. They would give these great genealogies. And so they would, they would put their, resume, their, their genealogies out and they would leave out all the people that were in embarrassment to who they were as a king. Which means everybody's scandalous and anybody that was a woman. And yet when you go to Matthew chapter 1, you know what you find out about the greatest king that ever was and is? You see Jesus' resume. You see his genealogy. And right there in the middle of it, you find what ought to be really the most scandalous read of everything. By moral standards, there are people that we should be ashamed of. Right in the middle of Jesus' genealogy are four women, Tamar, an incest survivor, Bathsheba, an adulteress, Rahab, a prostitute, Mary, an unwed single mother. And yet Jesus proudly gives them a place of honor in the genealogy of his kingship. You know what that means? That Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is declaring, Jesus is declaring, I'm not ashamed. You know what that means for you? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter if you've lived within the gates of hell. In Christ, Jesus declares, I'm not ashamed. doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what the verdict of culture is about you. It doesn't matter what your siblings say or what the world says. You're not ruled by what anyone else says. The death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Christ, your union with him, you're a part of his family. You are someone he sings over for joy. Somebody he's proud of, someone he's not ashamed of. Not ashamed to call you brother. Not ashamed to call you sister. Not ashamed to declare you and sing your praise. Do you want to know who you are and why you're here? You are his, if you will be. Created in his image. Jesus stepped out of eternity into humanity to redeem you for himself. Came to rescue you. So that you'd become sons and daughters of the living God. It's the rescue of the big brother. Your king. Hebrews will call him your captain. So I don't know. I don't know where you are this morning. But I would say if you've never considered the claims of Jesus, if you've never thought about, about God as the God who sings over you in praise, I invite you to consider it this morning. I invite you to come to him. So if you would, would you, would you bow with me and we'll... Uh,
We'll close in prayer. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory about the heavens. Father, we come this morning and I pray that your word would not return void. I pray that we would be We would be left in awe, not only as we consider your glory, but Father, as we, as we gaze into your majesty, Father, we'd be overwhelmed and humbled by who you've created us to be. Father, the love that you have for us, the sacrifice of your son, the eternity that you've created and secured for us as sons and daughters. Well, I pray if anybody here this morning has not, has not trusted your son Jesus, has not been saved and redeemed, and Father doesn't know who they are and why they're here, draw them to Jesus. Grant them faith to believe even in this moment. Father, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.